broken. Now, R.T. Kendall needs no more introduction, and he's very, he's been stuck on the, on the side of the step there for these 10 minutes. So I'll make him stay 30 seconds longer. The relationship that exists between R.T. and Kensington Temple, I think it began way back in 1870, somewhere around. <laughs> R.T., cut it short. You are greatly appreciated. Thank you for everything you've done for me personally, and uh, also for us as a church. We consider that you're coming back home today here in London. Welcome, RT. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. I think the highest honor that Colin and Amanda ever bestowed upon me was when I was invited to preach the funeral of their daughter few years ago. Uh, it's been at least 20 years. It could, may, maybe it's 25. I, I don't know. But uh, Lyndon Bowring and Colin and I made a covenant to pray for each other and our families every day. And uh, I could not have known that that friendship would have not only lasted this long, but the day would come that through Colin, Louise and I get London back. And we love coming here and Louise is with me. You, you just can't imagine how much we love London. I remember something Dr. Lloyd-Jones used to say to me. Uh, I didn't know what he meant by it. He used to say to me that he can hardly remember being the minister at Westminster Chapel. Now that I'm in the same position, I can hardly remember being there. Uh, and now to think that because of our friendship with Colin and Amanda, we get to come here, and it's just like coming home now. And uh, so thank you. It's true, in August, I think it's the second Sunday evening in August, we'll introduce the book Totally Forgiving God. Total forgiveness, totally forgiving ourselves, then it's a trilogy. Not that God is guilty of anything. He's pure, blameless, perfect. But He allows things to happen that we don't understand. And we must set Him free. And uh, that's what the book is about. But that'll be when I come back in uh, three or four or five months from now. Anyway, it's great to see you again. See a lot of old friends. Bill, Rachel, I'd better not start that. But Janet, Janet Boyle's over there. Did you know that? And, uh, well, we'll stop. Is Heinz Schrader here today? Heinz, are you here? He lied. <laughs> Said he was going to be here. Anyway, I guess he's not. Anyway. Or maybe he'll come in. He was going to be from South Africa to New York and stop through. I just didn't want to miss him if he was. Would you open your Bibles, please, to the book of Romans, chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 11. Romans 1, 11. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you 
but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among other Gentiles. I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. (coughs) Sorry about that. It is the power of God. Excuse me. This is live on TV and everywhere. This is embarrassing. (laughs) It is the power of God unto salvation of everyone who believes. For the Jew first, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed. a A righteousness from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And now I'm going to turn over to chapter 15, if you're able to do that real quickly. Romans 15, verse 20. Where Paul is now going to give the reason he's prevented. He said earlier, we just noticed, he had been wanting to come to Rome but was prevented. You might have thought that he was prevented because Satan prevented him. Because when he wrote to Thessalonians, he said so. He said, I've been prevented by Satan uh, from getting to you. You might have thought that was the case here, but it's not. He gives you the reason that he was prevented from going to Rome. He says, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. That is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. May God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of this, his most holy and infallible word. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Holy Spirit to be upon every mind present, those who look on, that their perception of what I say will be received as you intend. And upon my tongue, that I'll be cleansed, that I might be your transparent instrument to say everything you want said, nothing you don't want said. May this be a word that is pivotal, life-changing, and one that brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was 10 years ago that we resigned, uh, retired rather, at Westminster Chapel. And uh, they had a farewell service for us. One or two of you may have been there. Uh, Many church leaders present. It was uh, an honor to see so many that would come. 
Uh, and then at the end, I took a few minutes to say goodbye. But I dealt with one question. Whatever happened to the gospel? That question has become even more and more relevant since retiring. Uh, it's kind of funny to say I'm retired because the, the truth is I'm busier than I've ever been. In fact, I've never been so busy in my whole life. Being minister of Westminster Chapel is a piece of cake compared to the schedule that I, I keep now, what I have to do. Uh, but wherever I go in the world, the things I hear preached, and, and I, I just think, when will somebody preach the gospel? Is it that they don't understand it? Is it that they are afraid? Could it be that they are ashamed? Well, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He might have said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of the kingdom. He could have said that. He didn't say that. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to salvation. He might have said, power of God unto healing. Because Paul believed in healing. He saw people healed. He might have said it is the power of God for signs and wonders. Because he believed in them. He didn't say that. He might have said it's the power of God under the gifts of the Spirit. He could have. Because he believed in them. But that's not what he said. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation. Now, what does he mean by salvation? Well, I'll tell you exactly what it means. It means that when you die, you go to heaven and not to hell. That's what he means. Do you realize that is why God set his son into the world to die on a cross. The Bible in a nutshell, says Martin Luther, is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. It's a reference to hell. And this is why Jesus died on the cross. And when you consider how important this is, I am amazed that so much preaching today, especially turn on God TV, or in America we've got several Christian channels, and you, you just want to scream, will somebody please preach the gospel? Don't they realize that the world is going to hell? About three or four years ago there was a, a movement uh, a meeting going on in Lakeland, Florida, and they were talking about revival has come, it's last day ministries, and this is it. And do you know God TV had them live going all over the world? I mean, everywhere. Never in my lifetime had I seen such an opportunity to preach the gospel as on that occasion. And it went for several weeks, live every night. How many times do you think they preach the gospel? Not once. It was all word of knowledge and praying for people to be healed or be delivered. Not a word about why God sent his son into the world. Some of you will know that... Uh, a few years ago, right after our retirement, I wasn't expecting this at all, 
uh, Andrew White, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury's envoy to the Middle East, uh, invited me to meet Yasser Arafat. And what should have been a 15-minute visit uh, went to an hour and 45 minutes. And we became friends, good friends. But, but not knowing it was going to go to an hour and 45 minutes, I wanted to get one or two things in real quickly because I was there for one reason, and that was to get the gospel to Arafat. Uh, I started praying for him years ago, years ago. Never thought I'd meet him, but I was praying for him every day. It was just it's a long story how that happened, but I was thrilled to get to meet him. And I said to him, Ra'is, Arabic word for president, I think I've prayed for you more than any church leader in the world. And tears filled his eyes. But then I said to him, the big question is, where will you be 100 years from now? 100 years from now, it won't matter whether you get Jerusalem or the Israelis get Jerusalem. Where will you be? Where will you be? I don't know if anybody ever put that to him. Has anybody put that question to you? Where will you be 100 years from now? If you were asked this question, are you prepared to give the right answer? Do you know for sure if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? Do you know for sure? Do you? And if you were to stand before God, and you will, and he were to ask you, and he might, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And only one answer will do. Well, now, why is this passage in Romans so important? Well, what I think grips me most of all is the confidence Paul had in the gospel. The gospel. I wonder if ministers today really have confidence in the gospel. They're afraid if they preach the gospel, it's not going to, you know get people's attention. They resort to other things. Uh, they're afraid the gospel won't do it. But Paul said, I'm unashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. It was Paul's secret weapon. So much did he believe in the gospel that he didn't care where he went. He, he had that. In fact, the reason he was prevented from going to Rome is because he was spending too much time finding places where the gospel had never been preached. Most people I know want to go where the gospel's been. Let's say ministers coming out of Bible college, coming out of seminary, they're wanting a, a career, they, they like to have a comfortable living, uh, where there's an established place where you can have a little security, family, grow up, you know, go where the gospel's been, where there's already an established church. <laughs> Not for me, says Paul. I want to go where the name of Jesus hasn't even been heard. That's where I want to go. Find me a place where they've never heard. You say, boy, I don't think I'd want to do that. That's how much Paul believed in this gospel. You know, the interesting thing about the person of Paul. What do you think of when you think of Paul? I think many would say theologian. You'd be right. Missionary? Yep. Pastor? Oh, yes. But you haven't understood Paul until you realize he was basically an evangelist. All he lived for 
was to preach this gospel. He was primarily an evangelist. And so uh, he comes to Athens in Greece, and he's supposed to meet up with Timothy. And for some reason, Timothy's not there yet. So he's got a day or two on his hands. How does he spend the time? How would you spend your time if you were in Athens? Had a day or two, nothing to do. How would you spend your time? You know what Paul did? He went to the marketplace, not looking for bargains. <laughs> he went to the marketplace to talk about Jesus to anybody who just happened to be there. That verse, the way it's translated in the NIV, uh, was the most encouragement for me. Years ago, some of you may know this, some of you may not know it, but uh, uh, I invited Arthur Blessett to come to Westminster Chapel. He's the man that carries across around the world. And the reason I invited Arthur, if you really want to know, uh, not because I thought he would do what he did. I think if I knew what he was going to do, I'm, I've, I might not have invited him. I wanted him there because I thought I'd just get close to him. He was the most like Jesus of anybody I ever saw, and I just thought maybe some of that rub off on me. That's the reason I invited him. We had him preached uh, uh, the whole month of May in 1982. But then what stunned me, he said, we need to get out on the streets. What? <laughs> oh, yeah, we, we need to and get your people out on the streets. We need, we need to just talk to everybody. Oh, I've never done that before. Well, I said, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. I've got a plan. On Friday night, after our Bible study, you can address our young people. Uh, and then we'll all go to Page Street, which is a place you can go about a 10-minute walk. Because that's the only area in Westminster where you can knock on the doors and, and talk to people. So uh, he fired up the young people for about 45 minutes. Then we'll all go out, file out, going to Page Street. Arthur and I were the last out. And when we get to the zebra crossing, everybody else starts Page Street. Arthur sees three young people standing there. And he goes over and starts talking. I said, Arthur, this way to Page Street. He said, just a minute. He starts talking to these two, three people about the Lord, right? Total strangers. Never saw them. They didn't know who he was. He didn't know who they were. He just talks to them about Jesus. And I'm looking at my watch. I said, Arthur, we've got to get going. After a few minutes, two of them are interested. And they pray to receive the Lord. I thought, okay, well, now, now, Arthur, let's go. He had another track. He said, now I want to show you what just happened to you. Read your Bible every day. Pray daily. Witness for Christ daily. Every, your life has changed. And finally he finished. I said, Arthur, we do need to go to Page Street. He saw somebody else coming from Buckingham Palace. He went right to them. In 20 minutes, Arthur had him on his knees. He turned to me and he said, Dr. Kendall, I don't know where this Page Street is, but you don't need to leave the steps of your church. You've got the world here. Why would you want to go to Page Street? I died a thousand deaths. In that moment, I had a vision. A vision. A pilot light. It stays lit in an oven or cooker. It never goes out. And I knew from that moment what I had to do. 
I almost blush to admit it, but until then, if you were to ask me what was my aspiration, I'm not proud of this, my aspiration was to be a theologian of world class. That's what I wanted to be. Because I had certain things I believed I wanted to sort people out on. <laughs> but you know that hymn? My ambitions, plans and wishes, at his feet in ashes lay, all that died. I mean, it was over from that moment. I knew I'd have to be an evangelist and preach to everybody on the streets or in the pulpit. We will never be the same again. We launched our pilot light ministry and talking to people on the streets the first Saturday in June, uh, 1982. I said to a group of people, would you like to join me on the streets? Six showed up, and our pilot light ministry was born. It went on as long as I was there. I think it still goes on. I hope it does. think it does. All I know is I was out on the streets every Saturday for the next 20 years. My wife Louise was not happy. She said, you know, Arthur's Arthur. You don't need to be Arthur. And she was kind of, I won't say we're going to have a divorce over, but she was <laughs> not pleased that I would have to go out on the streets on Saturdays. But then one Saturday morning, she says, I'm going out today as a pilot light. I said, really? Well, good. I didn't know this, but she had asked the Lord for a sign. Was I doing the right thing? They put her at St. James Tube Station, a block from the chapel, and she was giving out tracts, one I'd written called What is Christianity? In 10 minutes, a man comes by, a young man with a Che Guevara t-shirt, says to Louise, says, what are you selling? She said, I don't suppose you'd want one of these pamphlets. She was nervous. And he grabbed it and said, look at this. What is Christianity? He looked at her. Tears filled his eyes. He said, I'm a Marxist. I'm an atheist. But five minutes ago, I was in a church. And I said, God... If you exist, let me run into somebody who believes in you. I was criticized in those days. Nearly lost my job. The thing that encouraged me more than anything else is that verse in Acts 17 where Paul went to the marketplace to talk to whoever happened to be there. See, you don't need a pulpit. It doesn't have to be on Sunday. When's the last time you ever talked to another person about the Lord? There's some here, you've never led a soul to Jesus Christ. You ought to learn to do that. You know, it's easier to preach right here than to go out on the streets in Notting Hill Gate and start talking to people. Paul said, I'm unashamed of the gospel. And the funny thing is, our pilot light ministry, after three or four years, uh, we went through a dry period. And it had been a couple months, and no one had prayed to receive the Lord. And this 
first Saturday in 1986, I remember it so well, the first Saturday in 1986, I was so cold, it was one of those bitter cold days. And only about eight people turned up. We hadn't seen anybody converted for weeks. And I decided we'd give up the pilot light ministry. It was going to be, I said, well, we've, we've shown we'd do it. And I, was I had a speech. I was rehearsing this speech that morning. As I walked out through the uh, yard to the steps, I said, I'll go to the church and say, it served its purpose. No embarrassment. Not sorry we did it. But all things come to an end. And I was going to close it down. Not ten seconds went by. Someone came up to me and says, a man here needs to talk to you. I said, who's this? He came up to me. He said, I'm looking for the man that wrote this tract. He says, Dr. R.T. Kendall. I said, I wrote it. You're Dr. Kendall? Yes. Tears were in his eyes. He said, one of your lads gave me this last Saturday. He was a taxi driver. He said, normally I throw these away. But I read it last Saturday afternoon. I was shaken rigid. Could I talk to you? I said, sure. He said, well, sit in the back of... No, I said it. I said, let's sit in the back of your taxi. It was so cold. I, just, I felt sorry for everybody else in the cold. Here I was in, in the back of the taxi there. And he said, according to this, I'm going to go to hell. Is that right? I said, yep. He said, well, you know, a lot of our fellow taxi drivers are, are, are Jewish. Are they going to go to hell? I said, well, I don't know about them. Because how do I know what they've heard, what they will do? But if they don't receive Jesus, they will. You would have thought that he would have turned him right off. He was tearful. I went through the gospel again. I said, would you like to receive it? Oh, yes, he said. <laughs> I led him to the Lord. A lot of those people we would never see again. Many were tourists. But he was back the next day. Weeks, months later, I baptized him. Became a member of Westminster Chapel. He became the favorite of the young people in our Thursday club. At our farewell evening, when we had present all the big names of London, Sandy Miller, John Stott, uh, Richard Buse, uh, came... But Charlie Stride also stood up and gave his testimony. He stole the show when they saw how he was converted just through the track and through the pilot light ministry. Now, here's the thing, what I'm coming up to. When I first wrote that tract, Peter Collins, deacon of the chapel, phoned me and said that we've had the track sent back. The Christian printer says you've made a mistake in the track. I said, what is it? So, well, in, you, you say here, Christianity is concerned mainly about your death. And the printer said you should change it. Christianity is concerned mainly about your life. I said, give it to another printer. This is why I'm in London. <laughs> so he left it alone, got another printer. Christianity is concerned mainly about your death. So months later, I said to Charlie Stride, I said, you know this track, this line right here? Yeah, I remember it well. I said, what if I had said Christianity is concerned mainly about your life? He said, 
I don't think that track would have got anywhere with me. I just thought, isn't that amazing? If I'd listened to a typical attitude. You see, you've heard the idea, I bet you have. If there were no heaven, if there were no hell, I'd still be a Christian. Ever heard that? Tell that to the Apostle Paul. He said, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we have all men most miserable. He said, if, if this is it, he said, I'm out of here. He said, here we are. We've been a spectacle to the world, to the whole universe. We're fools for Christ. We're weak. We go hungry, thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work with our hands. We are persecuted. We're slandered. We're the scum of the earth. And he said, if this is what it's all about, I don't want to be a Christian. What kept Paul going? What gets people interested? When they're going through all kinds of suffering to know that at the end of this life, there is a heaven. There is a heaven. And Paul said, that's what keeps me going. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Now, listen to these words. Paul says, for the wrath of God is revealed. Many people never get past Romans 1.16. They know the gospel is the power of God. But now he tells you two verses later why the gospel is urgent. You ever heard anybody say the gospel needs to be preached urgently? Why? Why the urgency of the gospel? What's the point? Is it that, well, if you don't receive this gospel, you won't, won't get a job by tomorrow? If you don't receive this gospel, your marriage won't be healed? Well, I know what people mean by that because it can heal marriages and God may now sort your life out and, and change your life. We saw people come off the streets and get jobs through the pilot life ministry. But we didn't go there to get them off the streets. We went there to tell them about Jesus who died on the cross for their sins and things follow. And now Paul says, here's the reason for the urgency. The wrath of God is revealed. God's angry with sin. And it's revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men. God hates sin. God hates your sin. He's angry. And yet, the wonderful thing is, when Jesus died on the cross, his anger was pacified by Jesus' death. You know, this point about the wrath of God. All of you will know the hymn, Amazing Grace. How many of you know verse 2? You know what verse 2 of Amazing Grace says? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." You see, that is the historic gospel. Why fear? It's because of the wrath of God. We're delivered from the wrath to come, Paul said in Romans, in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. Did you know the first message, the first message of the New Testament? You know what it is? John the Baptist, flee from the wrath to come. First message. And yet, for some reason... We've just got beyond that. I guess we're afraid we're going to offend people. And it will. But you know, when Paul knew he was going to go to Corinth, 
he made a calculated decision. Before he ever went to Corinth, where there was no Bible belt, no church, they never heard the name Jesus, he said, I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Why would he do that where they've never even heard? Because of the power of this gospel. You see, once you preach this gospel, the Holy Spirit takes over, and people are convicted, and they don't know why. It shows their sin, and they realize they're on their way to hell. This gospel does that. And yet, we're living in a time when the gospel is destigmatized, so that people won't be so quickly offended and uh, want to say something that won't embarrass them. Paul says, I'm unashamed. You see, the word uh, stigma comes from a word that means uh, scandal or offense. It actually comes to the word embarrassment. Embarrassment. You see, people are embarrassed today to talk about born again. They're embarrassed to talk about speaking in tongues. That's embarrassing. I preach for a lot of Southern Baptists in America. Uh, they're paranoid about speaking in tongues. You can, in, in, in America, you can be a Southern Baptist, be married 15 times, commit adultery, be a, a, a Mason, and you'll be accepted. If they ever find out you speak in tongues, you're out forever. That's the stigma. <laughs> I think a lot of you would be in trouble. <laughs> Paul said, I'm not ashamed. And people are embarrassed about the teaching of hell, wrath of God, eternal punishment. You see, Paul was a threat to the devil. Do you reckon you're a threat to the devil? Do you know that passage in Acts chapter 19 where there were some people playing around with the demonic and they were trying to cast out devils? They said, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches come out. It was a game to them and one came out and latched on them and, and then they said, Jesus we know, Paul we know. Who are you? <laughs> My old friend Rolf Barnard used to preach a sermon from that called the sermon, The Man Who Was Known in Hell, Paul. And Rolf finished his sermon saying, I want to be known in hell. I want to give the devil such a hard time that they know about me in hell. Do they know about you in hell? Do they know about you in hell? Are you known in hell? You see, we're living in a time where nobody's turning the world upside down. The problem with the world, there's no fear of God, and it's because in the church there's no fear of God. William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, his opening words at the first graduating class of the Salvation Army, his opening words were, brothers and sisters, perhaps I should apologize to you that we've kept you here two years to teach you how to lead a soul to Christ. He said, far better had you spent five minutes in hell than we wouldn't have to teach you. It would show on your faces, flee from the wrath to come. And the Apostle Paul lived for this 
And so he was unashamed of the gospel. Are you ashamed of the gospel? It's the power of God. Now he tells us how we're saved. And so he says the righteousness of God is revealed. The Greek says from faith to faith. Some of the modern versions, they interpret rather than translate. They should have left the words alone. It means faith to faith. What's that mean? The faith of Jesus is ratified by our faith. Here's what that means. Jesus, as a man, lived a life of perfect faith. He never sinned. He came all the way to the cross. And then because of his sinless life, as he was hanging on the cross and the blood dripping from his hands, his forehead, his feet, he said, it is finished. The words, it is finished, is the English translation of the Greek word tetelestai. That was a colloquial expression in the ancient marketplace that meant paid in full. So the last thing Jesus said was paid in full. Now, Jesus died for everybody, but not everybody are saved. Why? Because the gospel is revealed from faith to faith. If you want to know what the phrase righteousness of God means in, in Romans, look for the next time it is used. It's Romans 3.20. And he says the righteousness of God is revealed from the faith of Jesus Christ to all believe, to all who believe. Because if you don't believe, even though Jesus died for you, you'll be lost. It's from faith to faith. Your faith ratifies what Jesus did for you on the cross. And when you trust him, here's what happens. God takes all of your sins that were put on Jesus and puts them away from you so that they'll never be held against you. Here are two theological words for you. Expiation, propitiation. Expiation, that's what the blood does for us. Washes away our sins. Propitiation, that's what the blood does for God. Satisfies His justice. I'm sorry, but most people don't give a whip what's in it for God. They want to know what's in it for me. Well, I can tell you what's in it for you. Expiation. The blood washes away all your sins. But you ought to be interested in what it does for God because if it didn't do what it did for God, you've got no hope. The blood satisfied God's justice. That's called propitiation. And because he's been satisfied, the moment you transfer your trust to what Jesus did for you on the cross, in that moment, faith is put to your credit. Righteousness, so that you will never be regarded as guilty again. Do you know, there were two great awakenings in America. This is a matter of historical fact. One was in 17... 25 to 1740, 15, maybe 25 years, largely through the preaching of Jonathan Edwards. The other is in 1801, that lasted a few years, called the Cane Ridge Revival. Both have one thing in common that's very interesting. In 1733 to 1738, Jonathan Edwards preached nonstop on justification by faith. This is a phrase Martin Luther revived in the 16th century. 
In other words, you are justified, you are declared righteous by faith in the blood of Jesus. Jonathan Edwards preached that for five years. He preached it so much that he said at the end of that time in Northampton, Massachusetts, the whole town was full of talk about God. Wouldn't that be something? What if all London was just talking about God? You get on the underground, they're talking about God. Go into restaurants, they're talking about God. And it was this teaching that has almost perished from the earth. And then in 1741, he preached on a text in Deuteronomy. My feet shall slide in due time. A message on hell. When he finished, the power of God came upon the people in such a measure that strong men were seen holding on to church pews. Outside, they were holding on to tree trunks to keep from falling into hell. God owned that message with that kind of power. In 1801, a Methodist preacher stood on a, on a fallen tree. It was the beginning of the camp meeting phenomenon. They had come in their covered wagons from five states for fellowship and Bible study. It was the beginning of the camp meetings. And this Methodist lay preacher stood on the fallen tree when 15,000 people gathered around him and his text was, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of the things done in the body, whether they be good or bad. The power of God came upon the people so much that hundreds spontaneously, not because they were prayed for, they spontaneously fell to the ground under such conviction. There was panic. People thought they were dead. They would try to get a pulse, sometimes maybe two beats a minute. There was panic. But hours later, they would come out of it shouting with great assurance of salvation, and others would fall. And by the time it was over, everybody was falling. For four days, there was never a time there were fewer than 500 on the ground. The shouts of rejoicing, they said, were like the sound of Niagara. You could hear them a mile away. People would come to scoff, and they'd be converted. They would come to laugh. The power of God would hit them. They were saved. Interesting. Jonathan Edwards is preaching on hell. The Methodist preacher, Cane Ridge Revival, judgment. Both. Same thing. At the end of your life, you give an account. It's heaven or hell. This is the elementary ABC teaching of the gospel. I ask you again, do you know for sure if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And if you were to stand before God and He were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Suppose we passed out sheets of paper and, and uh, you uh, were going to fill out on that sheet of paper your answer. And I want you to go along with me now. Pretend that you've got a sheet of paper in front of you. You've got a pen. Write down in your mind what you would say on a piece of paper, to God, why He should let you into His heaven. And only one answer will do. And then after you've had a time, pass them to the end. Ushers collect them. Now I have 
A lot of sheets of paper. Here's several hundred, and I'll just read off from the top. Here's one that says, uh, uh, I've tried to live a good life. I'm sorry, I believe you, but you're lost. Here's another. I was brought up in a Christian home. Good, you had a head start. Billy Sunday used to say, being born in a Christian home will no more make you a Christian than being born in a stable will make you a cow. <laughs> Here's another. I was baptized. I believe you. That won't save you. Here's another. I was baptized by a Baptist preacher. <laughs> You're lost as a goose. Here's another. I've kept the Ten Commandments. Well, you're a liar, for one thing. Here's another. I've lived by the Sermon on the Mount. You're a bigger liar. The more space you need, the worse shape you're in. Two words will do. Jesus died. Jesus died. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. What did you write down on that sheet of paper? In your heart of hearts, you know what you would have written. If you would have said anything other than, Jesus died for me, or the equivalent of trusting Jesus' death on the cross, I don't care who you are. I wouldn't want to be in your shoes for anything in the world. But that can be changed. I'm going to give you a prayer to pray right now. Don't say it out loud. But if you can mean it, say it in your heart. God will see you. Say this. Lord Jesus Christ, I need you. I want you. I'm sorry for my sins. Wash my sins away by your blood. I welcome your Holy Spirit into my heart. As best as I know how, I give you my life. That's it. Did you pray that prayer? Did you? Question. Are you ashamed that you prayed that prayer? You say, why do you ask, R.T.? Because Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. I'm not going to ask you to make a speech. I'm not going to ask you to join this church. But if you prayed that prayer because you needed to pray it, just a minute or so ago. I'm going to ask you in 30 seconds from now, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. And you might be the only one who stands. You say, in front of all these people, yes. Oh, dear, this is kind of embarrassing. In front of all yes, yes, yes. Embarrassed, you see, that's the stigma. Or are you willing to say, I'm unashamed? In 15 seconds, I'm going to ask you to stand up. Not make a speech. I'm going to ask you embarrassing questions, but just to show you prayed the prayer, the angels are watching, you will show you're unashamed. Five, four, three, two, one. If you prayed that prayer, stand to your feet. Stand to your feet right now, wherever you are. Stand to your feet. Stand to your feet. Remain standing. Remain standing. Remain standing. Remain standing. Remain standing. Remain standing.
Remain standing. Thank you. Remain standing. Now, you that are standing up, to show that you really meant it, I want you to go to the nearest aisle and come down to the front. Come quickly. You that are standing in the gallery, come on. We'll wait for you. You'll take an extra minute. Come. Come on down. Come on down. Come on down. All of you. Come and stand right here. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Most preachers, I want to, I know this, well, let, let me go where it's been so it won't be so hard. Paul says, give me China. Give me the Amazon. Let me go where they've never heard because it's the power of God. He's unashamed. And you that are coming forward now are showing you are unashamed. You that are in the gallery, it'll take an extra minute. Uh, in the first service, it took almost a minute before you didn't know anybody had stood because you've got to go find the stairs and come down. But this is a precious moment. And you know what? You know what you've just done? You've put the angels to work. You'll find out when we get to heaven that an angelic concert struck up because we're told the angels rejoice over one sinner that repents. And you that have come forward have made the angels rejoice.